to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Dr. Steve Wood. Today's topic, medical malpractice cases. You know, this is a topic we haven't talked about as much as we should on the podcast. It's a lot of work that Bill and I do in this space, so we wanted to make sure we, we need to focus on it more. And to help me out, I got two attorneys today, both from Hall Booth Smith. I have Jackie Clark. Jackie is from, she's a partner in the Atlanta office. Jackie, how are you? Hey there. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Morning. I'm good. Thanks for coming on. And also I have Jason Hendren. Jason is also a partner. He is in the Rogers, Arkansas office. And he is, for those who have watched the podcast, listened to the podcast, he is friends with our good friend, Baxter Drennan too. Uh, Baxter was able to get Jason on here and I'm excited to have Jason on. Jason, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy to hear and, and, and excited to hear from you guys on, on a topic, like I said, that, that I like, I enjoy, and we just haven't focused on enough. Um, but Jackie, I, I do want to start, you know, when we talk about a lot, of, a lot of cases in the med mal space, you know, a lot of different injuries, a lot of different causation theories, a lot of different, you know, aspects of it. But in your experience, what have you found to be really kind of the toughest type of med mal case to try? Yeah, there's um, kind of a saying in the med mal uh, part of our, our litigation world that um, that you're not really a med mal attorney until you've tried a really bad birth trauma case, <laughs> um, uh, or at least worked it up to the point where you end up surprised at the end with some nutty life care plan that you're, you're you know, it, it's kind of like the icing on the cake of what can be very difficult, very long cases that change over time because there's always um, an evolving or there's a potential for an evolving injury in a, a young child that um, that you're kind of always checking in on, you know, um, so those can be very, very tough. Wrongful death cases can be tough um, and paralysis cases um, can be tough. And those are all because the damages are very difficult to uh, project from the front end. Um, and oftentimes the providers uh, did a very good job, you know, truly. And that's one of the reasons that Jason and I love what we do is because um, you feel that, you know, deep down legitimately, there are folks who are out there trying to do the, the best that they can. So those, those are some of the bigger categories for damages, but also can change over time in dramatic ways where we have a duty to make sure our client knows that, you know, and, and, and we're kind of always assessing that ear to the ground uh, evolution of the case. And there's also a lot of sympathy in that case too you're dealing with right yes. especially yes. with bad birth cases you have a little child who you know may have permanent brain damage and that and it's, it's really hard to put that in front of a jury and and tell them yeah. don't let sympathy bias prejudice weigh into your decisions i mean good luck with that right yeah certainly when you're looking at the jury charges as you're getting ready to go to trial in your in whatever state it's in there's always one on sympathy there's always one where jurors even in board you when you're first picking a jury, or we like to say striking a jury, because I wish we actually got to pick a jury. <laughs> um, but but when you're doing that, um, and, and in certain cases, when you read that jury charge, and you're thinking through how it will play, it changes dramatically. And those are the hard ones. <laughs> yeah. uh, those are the hard ones. So yeah, Jason, has that been what, what's any been in your experience, kind of the more difficult ones? Is it similar to what Jackie or you have some other ones that you found to be difficult? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Jackie's spot on, you know, birth trauma is always worrisome just because of the increasingly high life care plans. I rarely see one now for under $20 million. It's usually quite a bit more than that. You know, the, the things that have uh, been difficult over the years for me 
have been clients who are very, very reputable, really good hospitals, specialty hospitals, children's hospitals, where the juror, you have to be mindful that the jurors are going to be harder on those uh, facilities that they know well, that they think are, you know, top notch. They're far less forgiving of, you know, ordinary type of, uh, you know, uh, reasonable care. They, they expect things to be done really well. So I always counsel clients who are at, you know, very prestigious facilities. This doesn't necessarily make it better. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. your reputation will help you here, but it may all, we have to be mindful of the fact that they're going to expect more from you uh, also. And so those cases can be very difficult as well uh, because often, you know, when you're dealing with the children's hospital, they're typically getting a transfer late in the game from another outside hospital. And then, you know, you're kind of left uh, with a really, really bad situation at the very end. And it's often uh, where you get kind of left holding the bag if, if the result turns out to not be good, uh, ultimately. And then you're put in a position of, you know, having to defend yourself about what happened earlier and if they got to you earlier, those sorts of things. So those can be uh, really challenging as well. I think you bring up actually a good point that I've seen before is the same thing when you're saying about how you have a, a hospital in a community that has a really good reputation that when things go bad, things go quote unquote bad. It's like jurors will say, gee, this place is so good that if it went bad, they must have really screwed up because I don't expect them to screw up. So if they did, then they must have really screwed up. There must be some validity to the plaintiff's allegations, right? That's the danger. Yes. Yeah. And that's one thing I think is, is counterintuitive and people don't think about it a lot because they think that that reputation will, will help them. And, but it, it doesn't. So that's, that's an excellent point. I guess one of the other things too, is what about, have you guys noticed like traumatic brain injury cases are difficult? And the reason why I bring that up is I think because a lot of times there's a lot of focus on the Glasgow coma scores and whether or not it's a, a nine or an eight or a 15. But I think a lot of times there's wiggle room about plaintiff's counsel can say that it's the invisible injury or you can't see it or they're able to work it up differently. I mean, Jackie, have, have, what have you been experienced on that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. TBI cases are, um, so, so for the same reason that birth cases with hypoxic injuries can be an issue because they're, they can, you know, there can be varying interpretations. Uh, TBIs are, are, not even the next category, an analogous category for adults. And, um, and that's not just in the med mal sphere, that's in the trucking industry and, and big MBA cases and any real personal injury cases. Um, I had a trial four or five years ago um, in federal court where someone um, was, was alleging a TBI and asked for um, eight figures to the jury. And, um, and there was no evidence there's no objective evidence on on the MRI of any of any changes to her brain, um, but she was alleging personality changes. And the plaintiff's attorney used, and they have there are the plaintiff's bar has so many experts who will talk about you know that imaginary industry um, injury, and and they also will there are just so many subjective um, uh, changes like. Um, mood changes and personality changes and sleep deprivation and things, some of which are just like a natural part of either anxiety or depression or getting older and can be lots of other causes, you know. So, um, so yeah, it that TBI cases can be very tricky and the plaintiff's bar has is um, has lots 
lots of neurologists and um, neuroradiologists and other very um, specialized physicians that jurors will go, well, why would this person, you know, not be giving me an objective interpretation? And, but, but you don't have the same kind of objective findings on an MRI. And, and of course, with NFL um, concussion in, uh, injuries in the last 10 years and those being so publicized, the plaintiff's bar takes that kind of literature and those kind of, um, those kind of things where you can have overtime injuries, which are really very different than what we're dealing with, but they can use those to explain the brain in a way that people can understand, jurors can understand um, and, and relate to that science. And a lot of it is dubious when you actually get down in the weeds <laughs> and when you actually look at it and it really should be showing on most imaging, you know, so it's a hard, it's a hard argument to defend because you're going, well, what is, you know, your comparison of your mood, there's, there's obviously an incentive to, uh, to always to uh, drum up damages, but, but when it comes down to somebody's brain and their personality, it gets a lot more sensitive of a topic, um, and, and how you cross somebody like that, right, that, that, pla I crossed that plaintiff on the stand, because the partner at the time that I was working with had just crossed experts for four days and she was a mom, she had four kids. <laughs> and so having the right person to ask the questions so that they come across in a way where you're eliciting as much um, evidence to the jury of the legitimacy of the damages, that can be a real strategy call, you know, on who does that <laughs> and, and how those questions are asked because you certainly don't wanna beat up uh, a plaintiff that is alleging that they're brain injured and they can't answer questions the right way, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Then he just gets seen yeah. like you're piling, <laughs> you're piling on on them, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Jason, what's been your experience with, with traumatic brain injury cases? Uh, very similar. You know, I, and this is going to dovetail into one of the other topics that we may address. But, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury cases made me a firm believer in counter anchoring because the damages are so intangible uh, for the same, all the reasons that Jackie said. And I would I would echo all of those. But for that reason, it's that much more important in those cases to be able to show the jury, you know, here's what reasonable, you know, going back to the instructions, we talked about the sympathy instruction, we talk about the instruction of, you know, your damages in this case have to be reasonable and fair compensation for what is, was, is going on with this patient. And I think you've got to be able in those kind of cases where the damages are so scary to lay people and so intangible and hard to pin down in, in terms of an exact amount, you've got to have a reasonable number to give them so they don't just out of fear say, well, you know, I mean, we don't know what all is going to happen with this person, how long they're going to live. We don't know what's going to, you know, uh, be their needs, et cetera. And if you can come in in that situation and you have to craft it the right way, of course, you know, uh, you only get to damages if they've proved negligence and causation. But if you get there, this is what it would actually take to care for this person reasonably, you know, for what they're, they're going to need. And I think that is all the more reason to have the right damages experts on board to be able to show, hey, we take care of people like this all the time. Here's what they need. Here's what the costs are, you know, those kinds of things. So you can, at least to the jury, take some of the fear and the, the unknown out of it and say, you know, th th this does happen. We do have people who have injuries like this and they are well cared for. And this is what it takes if you get to that. Now, you don't need to get to that because we didn't do anything negligent. We didn't cause the damage you know, so forth. But I think in those kind of cases, it's, uh, it's extremely important to be able to put something in front of them 
so they don't come back to you later and say, well, the judge instructed us that we had to follow the, the evidence and base our decision only on the evidence. And the only evidence that anybody gave us on damages was the plaintiff. And I've seen that happen. And they'll sometimes try to say, well, we gave you a, a discount. We didn't give you everything they asked for, but it's still a really high number. Yeah. Uh, and that's why you want to at least give them something that's a lot more closer to what you think the real number should be and at least give them a chance to go with that one or, you know, get down toward it if they're going to go against you ultimately on, on negligence and causation. Yeah, Jackie, I know that, in, you know, we kind of have had conversations offline and, you know, other, other times I've, I've talked with attorneys too, where it becomes a question of do we, or don't we offer up a number? What are your thoughts on offering up numbers and especially in med mal cases too, when their gut reaction is, well, we didn't do anything wrong. Therefore it should be zero. Yeah. I think, you know, from the beginning, you have to be thinking about that. I think you have to think about that as you're doing discovery. Um, and, and I, I would say in, and there's no, there's no formula. I think generally, though, if it's a case that could go really, really sour, if there are big angering factors that um, that jurors may get so angry that, you know, you have two or three holdouts that are not going to give less than eight figures, right? If you've got that situation or, or if you've done a mock trial and you've had a few say that. Um, then, then you need to think really hard about providing a reasonable alternative picture for damages. And that's often best done through some credible experts who can provide, um, who can either look at what the plaintiff has done and has, has, you know, given in discovery and kind of go through it and explain the things that would, for example, be necessary anyway. And so those are not a reasonable damage to give. So like we've had cases where they are including in the life care plan sort of routine, you know, doctors, every person should go to the doctor once a year, every person should go to an eye doctor. So what are the additional things? This is medication that the patient was already taking before the injury, um, things like that, where you can kind of like cross off. And what's good about that too, is that, um, it makes the it makes the jury skeptical of what they're being given. They're not just being given an alternative picture. They're skeptical of, hold on a second, are they really asking us for too much? Um, and anytime you can kind of highlight without without um, pointing the finger the greed of the plaintiff's request um, and 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 plant those seeds of we're the reasonable ones here, not just in the care that we gave, but if if you decide that this person because they often do want to take care of the person, right? right? Jurors often want to take care of the person and they'll look at that and they'll work back from that. And if they can't ever get to liability, that's where we get defense verdicts and we're very, very happy, right? Um, but but if they can find some reason and but they can give you, you know, a number that actually will take care of that person, that's probably a number we've been considering anyway. <laughs> um, and, and so like in the case I was talking about before, the jury came back with a question and said, what were her initial medical bills? And we knew, we knew when they did that, like, this is great because that's what they ended up awarding, which was an objective win for us, you know? Um, so, so, and it, it's because they, and one of the, I think the important inquiries there is what is this person's life like now? So if it's an adult, what is their job now? How is that different from what they were doing before? Is that different because they were somebody who was going to change careers anyway? You know, is that somebody, you know, in, in my case, we had a school nurse who ended up starting a, a, a farm where she, um, 
made goat milk soap and would go to, you know, kind of fairs on the weekend. And she made a lot of money doing that. She made way more money than she did as a school nurse, even with her traumatic brain injury that she alleged, right? So if you've got pictures where you can show the jury, hey, this person is doing really well. Just this, they love, jurors love when someone has overcome adversity and they're doing well. And if you can paint that picture, um, it, you, I think that you, it's, it's reasonable to say like, hey, they're doing well. And this, this will, this small amount, if you do get to this phase, um, will take more than take care of them. Right. Um, and so you don't want to be stingy, but you don't want to give them the option of eight figures or nothing at all, because the lot of jurors don't want to choose nothing at all. <laughs> and you'll have one or two holdouts that go, hey, this seems mean to give them zero dollars. And we hear that in mock trials all the time. Right. That they skip right to the damages and then they go back and figure out how to get there. <laughs> uh, and they're not supposed to do that, but they but they do. They and it's just rationalizing. And amongst a pool of people, there's, I think, a psychological need to um, not find the middle. Um, they don't know, not everybody wants to do that, but at least consider concessions, right? And if you've got zero or, or something enormous, it's just wise to have, to consider having something that feels like you're going to take care of that person. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Jason. I think it goes back to, it's one thing I was thinking about is you always have to be careful on alternative damages to make it so the jury doesn't think you're trying to lowball. Like we hear all the time, right? The defense is trying to lowball and plaintiff's asking for too much. Defense is lowballing. We'll, we'll try to find something, but you can go too low in some instances on the defense side and really piss jurors off from what I found. Is that kind of what your experience has been too? I think that the general notion that scares defense lawyers a lot is if we talk about damages at all, will the jury take that as a tacit concession that they might have done something wrong on, on, uh, on negligence or causation? And I think that the science behind that, uh, Jackie and, and my partners have done quite a bit of, of uh, uh, study on that. And I think that the, the answer to that is no. They're not just automatically going to think you're conceding uh, in any way, if you go ahead and argue damages. The thing to, to keep in mind is that most of the time, the defense counsel in the case are going to be better prepared. They're going to make a better presentation than the plaintiff's counsel. They're going to build up credibility with the jury throughout the case. And so when, even if the jury ultimately decides, say, look, we like you, we like your client, but boy, she zigged when she should have zagged and it caused a problem. I think that the credibility you've built up putting on your case can help you when they say, but, you know, we, we, we trust what you're telling us. Your presentation has been good. It's been credible. Here's what you're telling us on damage. We're more likely to go in your direction. And I think the, the, the science, to the extent we have it on that, proves that up. But they're more likely to go with our number or get closer to it than they are for the plaintiffs. So I, I don't think... Most of the time, I don't think we're going to get accused of lowballing uh, as much as plaintiffs are going to be accused of highballing, if you will. Yeah. Uh, but in the right case, with the right amount of damages at stake, you know, you got to use every arrow in the quiver, you know, uh, because you're only going to get one shot to to influence what their number is going to be. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to move on to another another topic. You, you said something. You kept talking. You know, you talked about the science, and we've talked more about life care plans and that. You know, I guess the question becomes, you know, in a med mal case, a lot of medicine, a lot of, a lot of experts come in, a lot of new terms, you know, and I guess, Jackie, the question becomes, do jurors, have you found, do they understand the medicine or does it take a little bit of work to get them there to understand all the different aspects that they're being talked about? 
So they usually don't <laughs> is the answer. Um, and, and I always try, when I try to get a case, I try to make a list and this is so silly, but I try to make a list of what I had to Google, you know, and, and, and I think that's really important because you can lose that as a case goes on two or three years later, when you're presenting it to a jury, you just know how to pronounce every part of the small bowel and, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and there, and of course, because we've done MedMal for years and years and years, we know more of it from each case, you learn more, but uh, especially in like complex surgery cases or things like that. But even in birth cases, right? There's a lot that I, you know, as a mom, assume that other like women on a jury would maybe know, but that in talking to my friends, I'm like, they don't know any of this, you know? Yeah. Um, even ones that are, are recent moms or, or things where you just assume that they do that because the way attorneys process things and the way we're kind of um, inherently curious about things like vocabulary uh, and you know law school is that way you get in there and you get hazed by not even knowing what the words mean that you're supposed to be learning um, and so so yes we have to be very careful not to patronize jurors but also to make sure we're always kind of educating them and what's we do that through lots of different tools through demonstratives you know through exhibits it's through excellent experts. You know, if you get an expert on the phone and it's your first call or your first use of that expert and they're and they're already saying, okay, well, let's take this back. Let me tell you how this part of the body works or let me tell you how what this normally looks like at, you know, a hospital like yours versus a rural hospital, you know, and, and they're they're making those distinctions for you that can really help build it in but yeah they they always need jurors always need a vocabulary lesson but they also don't there's always this um there's a distrust i think an inherent distrust of attorneys in the room as opposed to witnesses they always say that a juror is is way more likely to give the witness the benefit of the doubt so we are always building trust with jurors and one way to not build trust is just to assume everybody's stupid, right? <laughs> you yeah. want to make sure you are talking to them. But of course, there are multiple level, levels on every jury. You've got folks that didn't graduate high school sometimes, and you've got folks that are doctors or, or have PhDs or are nurses or are very familiar with the industry. And of course, we love having folks who have healthcare experience or who are um, most of the time. Now, you have to be careful with that, right? You still have to flesh that out. You don't always necessarily want a nurse because it depends on their views on other things too and how likely they are to actually consider the standard of care in this case and things like that. You don't want them to skip your presentation because they have experience. But uh, but yeah, you do, definitions are important, but I would say that um, they can get really boring too. I mean, you can lose somebody quickly by saying, let's go through the basics of blah, 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 you know? So that is not an exciting narrative and it's not one that holds them in. And that's always not always the most important part, but visuals are huge. You know, we've got a whole, a uh, war room in Atlanta of different body parts, <laughs> you know, different, and, and it, just seeing how they all work. A lot of jurors are very visual people, you know, so even from day one in our reports, we like to include like pictures to our clients to explain, hey, this is what this looks like, you know, um, so, so yeah, and sometimes a, a medical illustration is helpful, but sometimes a real picture is helpful because medical illustrations are not what the body actually looks like. Those are just to learn the anatomy, right? Um, and the real picture is what the surgeon is dealing with, <laughs> you know, so uh, plus a field that has all sorts of other uh, things going on in it. So yeah, it's, it's so important for them to learn the parts, but it's more important for them to learn like how they work and the difficulties that they present, right? Especially if it's a sur surgical case. Um, and, and then like, cases like baby cases, like a shoulder dystocia or, or other cases where physics matter. So then you're not just explaining vocabulary of the parts, but then how the parts um, 
can be problematic inherently, right? <laughs> how, how like a pelvic bone and a baby's skull can and the shoulder but can become a whole physics problem. And so experts are huge, huge in that. And the more you can have an expert who you get a two for one on good vocabulary that's relatable, the better. We don't always have that. Often that's our job, you know, to become kind of the educator as we're telling the story for sure. <laughs> So yeah, I think that's one thing to your point when you were talking about <clears throat> experts and being educators, I think that's what you need to do more of educating versus talking at, and you need to find those experts that are willing to, or able to engage with the jury and be the teacher versus be the, the lecturer, right. And, and lose them. You know, Jason, I want to move on to, we had talked earlier about things that can, and, you know, difficult cases, things that can make jurors upset. I think one thing that we commonly see, you know, I don't know what your experience has been as far as that kind of idea where you have in multiple healthcare providers, whether it's a doctor and a nurse, where they're both named in the in the lawsuit, or there's some both have involved in the lawsuit, and you have them wanting to point fingers at each other and one trying to throw the other one under the bus to try to protect themselves. Like what how does what in your experience? And then I guess, really, how do you handle that? And how do you approach that? It's a it's a significant issue. And it's one that the plaintiff's lawyers uh, try to exploit whenever they can. Obviously, they're adding more and more defendants. I've had cases where we've had 50 or more defendants, including every individual nurse who uh, rounded on, you know, or, or took care of the patient for the 10 days or 12 they were in the hospital. And what I routinely teach, you know, when I teach at uh, the nursing schools is, you know, as soon as you start doing that, the value of the case goes up and the defensibility of the case goes down. There's just no other way around it. Um, and we spend a lot of time, uh, if, we're, if we're smart, talking with the co-defendants attorneys and saying, okay, you know, here's how we need to you know, work through these issues. And sometimes I'll have to go, if I represent a hospital, I'll have to go to the doctor's attorney and say, look, I can't necessarily help you on some of these issues that your doctor has to deal with, but I won't hurt you. you know, so do me the same courtesy, but there's some questions that you should not ask. <laughs> Cause it's probably not going to be what you want to hear. You know, so I try to map that out to the extent I can early on to say, here's where the real issues are going to be. And it's very tempting to try to get into that stuff. Uh, you know, if you're, I'm, I've been doing this 25 years and it was routine uh, back when I started for the OBs to just dump on the L and D nurses. That's just what they did, you know, and uh, everybody just sort of assumed that's what was going to happen. And what we found is if the, the OBs do a better job of saying, hey, look, you know, I'm not sure what I would have done if they'd call me another time or if they'd said this or whatever. You've got a lot better chance of everybody riding through to a defense verdict in that case, uh, even when the physician says, yeah, well, they should have told me this and then I would have done that counsel are smart enough and, and skilled enough to say, well, you know, you kind of should have figured that out anyway. I mean, why weren't you checking on your patient? Why weren't you asking more questions? So, you know, typically if you can get the attorneys involved to agree, hey, look, no matter which way you go, they're gonna exploit that. We have a better chance overall if we're all on the same page and we can talk about this tragic event that happened, but that everybody was acting reasonably and appropriately. And sometimes things happen that we just can't, you know, no matter what we do, it's not gonna change that outcome. Uh, but it's easier said than done. And once the, the, the cat is out of the bag, as they say, it's very hard to put it back in. I've had some doctors be able to come back at trial and say, you know, I did say that at my deposition. That's true. However, 
since that time, I've been able to review the depositions of the, of the other involved providers. I've been able to review the depositions of the experts. And I have to admit, I think they're right. I don't think that, you know, uh, under those circumstances, I would have elected to do a C-section because there was a maternal fever, because there was a danger, you know, to the mother. And, you know, I mean, there, there's ways you can do it, but it's better if you can do it on the front end, you know, yeah. the back end. Jack, has that been your experience? I know when I'm reading depositions or if I'm, I'm talking with doctors or nurses and they start wanting to point the finger, it stresses me out. Oh, yeah. And it's hard because I think sometimes, I mean, it's definitely a trust factor amongst your co-defendant counsel. And we have good, I mean, in Georgia, we do a lot of states have good um, protections on joint defense agreements. So you can just, if you need to have a written agreement in place about, hey, let's talk through these experts, let's talk through causation. We want to have a good picture, you know, even if we've got some issues about whose job was what or who was at the bedside at what time. Um, it's really a matter of prep, right? It's really not just of, of your clients, but when you're going in to take a deposition, like Jason said, like, knowing if there's a question you shouldn't ask or knowing if there's a question you're going to ask a co-defendant doctor that's going to you know you won't be surprised if you just call their attorney <laughs> and say hey how would he answer this um because it affects x y and z and so you can get a lot of trust that way you can also really plant the seeds for efficiency for like sharing experts <laughs> and um you know having a good damages picture and having causation experts if you need them and so those initial calls are um are one of the most valuable things that we do and of course a lot of us work together pretty regularly so you can get a reputation very quickly um, for being the person who kind of always blames somebody else and who proves plaintiff's case for them. And it doesn't help anybody. Um, so we really try to avoid that if possible. And we've got cases where the it, that requires a lot of work because the provider legitimately believes that, you know, whatever it was and would not have happened if X, Y, and Z, right? It's not just blame. They are like in a situation where they expect or whatever, and they're disappointed. And and um, sometimes there's a little bit of disappointment in themselves and that's a whole psychology issue and, and there's deflection. And sometimes it's just a matter of truly like, here's what the hospital policy says and that's why I expected or whatever, but feels like an objective, like, oh no, you know? And if so, if you're, you're in that situation, I think to the extent you can minimize it through prep and not play, you know, not paint plaintiff's case for them, that is that's a hard conversation. But a lot of times they'll come around and say, hey, you're right. I will just expand this whole situation <laughs> if I give them all of my thoughts. And I always tell my clients, you, you know, a deposition is plaintiff's opportunity to ask questions. It is not our presentation. It is not your because they will feel like that if they go into a deposition thinking that they have to paint the whole picture and set the record straight. Um, that's where you start to have those like anxiety inducing moments where you're like, oh my goodness, what is he still saying? You know, um, so that it's really so it's so prep is so important. And the first prep begins when you first meet your client, you know, that first meeting where they are learning that they've been sued or they were just served, you know, but it's also important with experts. I know we've talked about experts a lot already today, but um, but you can have an expert. It's important when you're going through your expert's initial opinion. Say you have just one provider, you have just the radiologist. But this guy might have thoughts on all sorts of stuff, right? Um, it's important to make sure you know if your expert has problems with a co-defendant <laughs> or, or someone else's care, um, or if they're gonna stay away from that. And you prep them for how to respond to questions in a way that keeps them in their lane. That's good anyway, that's just good practice. Um, but because plaintiffs can, that can just become easy fodder when somebody starts to have 
overarching opinions, but you want to know before your expert gets in there and starts pointing the finger when everything else has gone smoothly, <laughs> you know, that has happened uh, before. And it's again, hard to walk back. It can, it can be walked back and you can ask your own questions of your expert. You know, there are things you can do with that, but it's all about the prep. It's all about the mental approach to the case and the providers. Sometimes they start with their own hindsight bias. They start with their own. They already know the outcome. They already wish something had gone differently. And they're trying to find a reason for that. Right. So it's it's a matter of building them up and walking them through what they knew at the time, you know, and walking back through the care. And, and once you do that, oftentimes you end up in a much better mental place and a better place to be deposed than if, if you didn't do that. So, yeah, Jason, Jackie had said something that, was, that, that made me think about when you talk about kind of this psychology behind what doctors, nurses and healthcare professionals are going through. You know, I, I think I found sometimes they can because they're hard on themselves. They, they're they're strong willed personalities. They're the helping personalities. Do you find them to be difficult to prepare for depositions? Because to Jackie's point, they want to explain, they want to defend their care. They want to make sure that they get their stories across. What's kind of been your experience on that? You know, we spend a lot of time on uh, prep. We've learned, I think, over the years, uh, far better how to do that. When I started many years ago, the, the general rule of thumb was just say yes, no, or I don't know, and shut up. And we'll spring it all on them at trial, and it'll be great. And, you know, that was back when you actually had trials uh, a lot more often. And, you know, the, the defendant could get dinged at trial when the, when the plaintiff's lawyer crosses them and says, wow, you know, it's your deputy didn't say much. And now you're, you're very loquacious. You want to talk all the time. And it looks a little bit funny. Um, but, you know, I think it's better in their depositions if they can tell their story. They just have to do it the right way, you know, because they do want to. But you've got to work through some of the psychology. You know, so many of the doctors and nurses are, you know, they've always been seeking perfection. That's what they have always done. And they expect that of themselves. And it's hard to get them reined back into, you know, all you really had to be was reasonable. That's really the main issue. So how can we explain this in ways that you're not making it sound like you didn't achieve your expected perfection standard, which is impossible anyway. And it makes you sound like you did something wrong, even though you didn't, you were completely reasonable. Uh, but you sometimes are, are making it too hard on yourself and, and making it sound bad. So, you know, and I know you do a lot of witness, witness prep uh, uh, discussions. And I, I think that's kind of something that we've come to as a, we've understood. If you do more of that, if you work through some of their issues, uh, I think they've got a lot better chance of coming across as a considerate, compassionate provider that the jury is going to like. And if you get that impression to the plaintiff's counsel early in the case, preferably a day or two after you've really smacked the plaintiffs around <laughs> in their own depositions, I think you set the tone for the case. And I've had a lot of cases where uh, the case has gone away when the defendant gives her deposition because she explains, here's what happened. I care about my patient's you know, I understand that there are concerns here. I'm not mad about it. I want to make sure you understand why I had to do what I did. And I think that goes a long way uh, in, in prepping the case for whatever's going to happen, uh, especially if it's video. That comes a lot, a lot, comes across a lot better at trial than an evasive uh, witness on video. Yeah, good point. Jackie, I want to wrap up on, on one last question, you know, kind of the elephant in the room when we're talking about med mal or really any cases. We're talking safety, 
safety being a top priority and how that Hippocratic oath tends to get used against medical professionals and how they tend to fall prey to the plaintiff attorneys focusing on a lot of this risk, safety, danger, harm, all of that aspects. So what has been, how do your approaching of that, preparing your witnesses for that so that they're, you know, to Jason's point, not being evasive, but at the same time being aware of what's occurring, why the answer is not yes, because it's factually true that it's not yes, you know, the, that whole, the whole aspect. Yeah, we, um, you know, that we, there's the reptile book and, and a lot of people, um, it's interesting that, you know, this, the background psychological safety based, you know, that, that people have this reptilian aspect and when questioned on safety, they'll always say yes. And when jurors hear there was a safety issue, they'll always feel like there was a violation. And, and it's really a conflation, right? It's a conflation of what the law actually says because the law does not say anything in general in medical malpractice cases, especially about safety. <laughs> the law says what, was, what a reasonable provider should have done with those patient-specific circumstances. And so um, oftentimes I'll give them kind of silly examples, right? I'll, I'll ask that question. I'll, that's kind of a test question for any doctor or nurse when I'm first starting to prep them for their deposition. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, well, tell me, here's an example cross question. Uh, you, you believe patient safety is the most important thing that should be in your mind at any time, right? Um, and you say it in this very, like, it would be silly not to agree with that. And they sound like that. All of those questions sound like that. That's why they're so dangerous. And if you're just if you're just prepping them um, to Jason's point for yes, no, I don't know, really short answers, and they're never giving an opportunity or even being prepped for when they need to explain, <laughs> um, then that can be so dangerous, right? Um, so I, I try to use a silly example of, well, I mean, like if I wore a helmet in my car, that would be safer, right? Well, do you think that's reasonable? Do you think that's way beyond reasonable? You think it's a little ridiculous? Well, we're going to have themes in this case that are like that, right? We're going to have themes that whether it's your charting or whether it's, you know, um, double, triple, quadruple checking, whether it's an additional test that should have been ordered. Um, and, and so, yeah, those are safer, but if there are things that are not normal <laughs> and they're not reasonable and and in fact, you, you go like, whoa, I don't know if that's even ever been done. Please tell me so we can work on defense themes that, uh, that where we are, we can call those things out. And in your deposition, it's okay to say things like, well, I don't, I don't think that's ever done at our hospital or any hospital that I know of, <laughs> you know, when plaintiff has this theme, that's like, it, it always should be done more should be done more should be um, recognized earlier. So, um, so yeah, I think that Safety is a very dangerous topic, ironically, if it's not prepped for, and in, especially in med mal cases, because patients go into a hospital or facility and it just saying no, patient safety is not the most important thing to me is also a bad answer, right? Um, yeah. uh, you, you have to explain um, and you have to explain why. And so I, ha I try to use kind of silly examples like that, where I say, hey, reasonableness is the actual standard. And we do other things too, obviously, when we're getting a case ready for trial, if we've seen a lot of reptile theory stuff, safety questions, safety themed uh, crosses of, of experts will file motions in limine about um, conflating the legal standard and that the legal standard is reasonableness, right? And we'll cite the statute and the legal standard is not, you know, the safest possible outcome. Uh, but so it's not just witness prep, but those are very dangerous questions, not just in med mal cases in any case, but, but nurses, doctors, healthcare providers in general, it's, they are inclined to agree that safety is important and even the most important thing 
safety is not always the most important thing, actually. <laughs> you know, so when you talk through when that's not actually true, then they go, okay, they can they can understand that those can be tricks, you know. Yeah, Jason, what's what's been your experience on that too? And like I said, I and then even to 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 Jackie's point, sometimes an attorney will go, reptile theory. Oh, what are you talking about reptiles? I've never, I don't even know what you're talking about, but you can hear, you know, and maybe they're not using the needlessly in danger, unnecessary risk straight from the manual, but absolutely they're pounding on that kind of safety topic, right? Absolutely. And I think the Jackie's point is a great one. I'm gonna I'm actually gonna steal the helmet in the car example. I, <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, but the point is, I, I agree completely, you've got to break the spell, you know, because there, there is such a danger. And, and, you know, I have seen providers just look like a deer in headlights, like, well, what am I supposed to say? I mean, I can't sound stupid. If I say no to that, it sounds like I'm saying, yes, it's okay to beat your dog or whatever. And uh, once you kind of, again, put it in perspective and break the spell, it's very powerful when a doctor says, hey, look, most of what we do is not safe. Every time I cut someone's chest open to go and take a look at their heart, that is not safe. It's never been safe. You know, what we do, again, we have to be reasonable and do what we think we need to do to help this patient. We have to weigh the risk of that unsafe thing, cutting into that patient against the benefit of getting down there to their heart or their whatever and taking care of the situation. I told you, I think before we started, I just tried an umbilical hernia case and those are not supposed to go bad. Those happen all the time. They're supposed to be safe. It's like an appendectomy. Every once in a while, something will happen. And when you can tell the jury, look, I mean, this is not a safe procedure. This is a procedure that can be done uh, in such a way that complications are less likely to happen. But no matter what you do, occasionally, you're gonna have a complication. And the key is to recognize it, take care of it appropriately and, and timely. That's where the, the real case is. And if you can kind of get them through that, you know, you're being manipulated. And, and I've said that on occasion, you are being manipulated, <laughs> uh, jurors. They're, they're trying to do this. This is not what the law says. And this is not reality. It's not reality of what reasonably happens in these situations. And I think it gives you a great opportunity to build up your credibility and get a little bit of a, a side eye going on the jury toward the plaintiff's counsel when they realize, hey, you know, that was that was good. I mean, you almost had me there. You almost <laughs> made me think something that's not really what we're here for. And it's right there in black and white. That's why I put the instructions up on the screen for the jury. They don't have to take a slick lawyer's word for it. Here it is. And that is so much more effective when I can say it's not me saying this. This is what the, the court is reading to you. But of course, when you get to that part of the instructions, their eyes are kind of glazed over anyway. But when you show them and most of our courtrooms now have, uh, you know, video monitors in the box where they can actually see it and I can highlight it and underline and all that kind of stuff. I think that helps you put an end to that fiction where, like Jackie said, you're not going to see it, the word safe in any of these instructions. None of them ever. <laughs> you mean safety, the safety rule? There's not a safety rule book. They don't give safety rule books out. <laughs> I haven't seen one yet. You know, I, in Ball and Keenan's book, maybe, but you're not going to see it in the Arkansas model and jury instruction civil. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this is great. I, I appreciate both of you coming on. I, I could talk to you guys for hours, um, but I'm going to wrap this up here. So, um, but I appreciate both of you coming on Jason Hendren, uh, Jackie Clark. Thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. <laughs>